0: As people around the world come to acknowledge that gender is something defined along a spectrum rather than a binary concept, the necessity of a gender dysphoria diagnosis needs to be revisited. Some have called for the American Psychiatric Association, which created and is updating the DSM-5, to remove this diagnosis entirely as it conflates a social identity with a mental disorder and propagates stigma. Others have argued that the diagnosis is necessary to cover medically necessary treatment, and it does guarantee that certain populations, such as incarcerated people or members of the armed forces, have access to care deemed medically necessary under the law. To better serve all patients, insurers should decide medical necessity, not by a diagnosis, but by reported identity. Expanding access to gender-affirming care will save even more lives.
1: That was Dallas Dukar, CEO of TransHealth Northampton, reading from her first opinion essay, in giving gender-affirming care, a gender dysphoria diagnosis should not be required. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, Chief Operating Officer at STAT. I'm joined by Peter Shen, global head of research and development for Johnson & Johnson MedTech to discuss the latest on healthcare R&D. Thanks for having me, Angus. MedTech research and development elevates human health and enriches patients' lives by creating meaningful innovation that is smarter, less invasive, and more personalized for better outcomes. Our global team is working relentlessly to become a patient-centered, growth-focused innovator that is the elevating standard of care. We are evolving into an integrated and digitally powered medtech company. Experience tells us that a big challenge won't be solved by single discipline. Here at the JNJ MedTech, we are uniquely positioned to lead the way using a collaborative Multi-discipline approach to innovation. Thanks, Peter. To learn more, visit jnjmedtech.com. That's jnjmedtech.com. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett editor of First Opinion, stats platform for essays written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. It's so great to talk with you, Dallas. It's great to talk with you, Pat. Thank you for having me here. Our pleasure. So you're a nurse practitioner and the founding CEO of TransHealth Northampton in Western Massachusetts, which is kind of sort of halfway between Boston and New York City. How long has the clinic been operating?
0: It's been operating in full service since this past May, so not even a full year yet. And we've started to see therapy patients here as early as last March. And since then, we've had the pleasure to see over a thousand trans and gender diverse patients and really haven't advertised at all. So we know that the need is clearly here. There's an estimated 20,000 trans and gender diverse folks in our catchment area overall. And we are only seeing that need increase for all of the services we offer.
1: Well, that must be, you know, affirming to you all. It is,
0: yes. You know, what we really do is we provide primary care. We provide mental health care, both therapy and psychiatry. We provide care across the life spectrum, right? So from cradle to grave. And we really believe that this is just what quality healthcare looks like, right? At the end of the day, we want to affirm our patients, we want to celebrate them, and we really want to offer person-centered healthcare.
1: You know, if it's okay with you, I'd like to sort of back into the key concept of your essay, which focuses on the concept of gender dysphoria. And that's in a shorthand, that's feeling uneasy or distressed by the difference between one's gender identity and one's sex assigned at birth. So when I initially read your essay, one term that caught my eye, and and actually that sticks with me now, is gender euphoria. It conjures up promise and potential and joy. Can you describe what you mean by gender euphoria? Of course, Pat. So I i am
0: trans, and I transitioned around 2016. And unfortunately, I don't remember a lot of my own childhood, because I, like so many trans and gender diverse people, had to repress or suppress, but really push down the, frankly, the traumatic memories of having to live in a body that did not feel like mine. But there are memories that I can vividly remember. There were memories where I would go into my mother's closet and try some of her clothes on when no one was in the house, a very common experience of other trans women. Um, Or, you know, go to the store and buy my own piece of clothing that I would then hide in a locked safe in my room as a child. (laughs) Or, you know, the moments later on in life of being able to wear makeup for the first time or being able to be seen by my own grandmother for the first time, or being able to have the right pronouns being used. Oftentimes, as a psychiatric nurse practitioner, when meeting with clients and patients, I would ask them to localize the euphoria. You know, so much of life would feel like dysphoria. So instead, I'd say, where do you feel right? You know, where do you feel at home? Where do you feel like you can really breathe easy as yourself and be seen? at least by yourself for who you are. And that pivot towards euphoria, that is I think something that can be so powerful for someone to say, yeah, that's when I felt most like myself. And that's proof to me and understanding that that's how I want to feel each and every day. I wanna be affirmed, I wanna be celebrated, I wanna be known by myself and by others who are close to me.
1: Is gender euphoria something that people come to on their own? Or is it the result of receiving affirming care? Or is it, you know, some people one way, some people another way?
0: Yeah, I wouldn't say that there's necessarily one experience of gender euphoria by any means. And that is what makes this type of health care so individualized and so comprehensive that everyone's experience of their gender is different. What I will say is that gender is so... Ingrained in who we are. I would encourage any listeners to think about the first time they had an experience of their gender. Think about what chores you were asked to do as a kid, right? Think about what jobs you were told you'd be good at. We just know from data that people get paid differently based on their gender, right? Gender is infused in society. And so it's not just the person alone but also how people react to that person and how society experiences that as well. So I would say there are people who come to gender euphoria, but oftentimes it is because of also the experience of others within their community or perhaps seeing themselves represented in someone else or being able to find a place with others where they can actually express
1: themselves safely, freely in a way that really honors them so you described in the essay i think that gender is coming to be recognized as quote existing along a continuum rather than binary is the experience of melding mind and body also spectromatic I, I know that's not a word but it 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 feels right when you say melding mind and body what do you mean by that i mean coming to terms with your own identity
0: mm. yeah I would say so. I think that for a long time, the medical establishment has really seen trans people as this population that reaches a point where someone transitions and they transition from male to female or female to male, right? But really, gender exists along a large spectrum one side being male, one side being female, and then a lot of continuum in the middle, right? What we call non-binary identities versus binary identities, right? And so people can at some point in their life say, you know, I, I really feel like a woman, right? I'm transitioning to a woman. And then later on in life, they may say, you know, actually... I feel more non-binary after I've done some more gender exploration. And I think we as a society, and especially in healthcare, really need to leave room and create space for dialogue of that gender exploration, right? I mean, how many times have you been certain about, 100% certain about any choice that you've made, right? I know when I try to go buy ice cream, for example, I don't know what type of ice cream I want. You know, when i buy a new car, you know, do I really know if I need this or want this, right? And so, so many choices in life might have some ambiguity to them. And we need to leave space for that ambiguity. And instead say, it's not just a directional transition, but instead a process of embodiment, a process of feeling like you are more of yourself. And perhaps at one point in your life, that is man, perhaps another point in life that is woman, and perhaps another point it's non-binary and we have to really trust the patient that they know what is best for their own identity, not the provider.
1: So let's talk about the difficult or challenging or problematic end of this spectrum, gender dysphoria. How do people dis- how do people with gender dysphoria describe what they're feeling? That's a great question and I don't know if I'd be
0: able to provide what answer. But oftentimes, people with gender dysphoria will report some type of disconnection with their own self or with their own gender. Sometimes that will uh, take the form of different type of psychological experiences. It may include symptoms that seem similar to depression or anxiety. Sometimes it may even seem similar to symptoms that uh, look like you know, psychosis or trauma too. But really the 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 core component of gender dysphoria is that distress that one has with their own gender. Um, the APA has decided that it's a specific amount of time, six months, but really it's that prolonged distress where someone is insistent, inconsistent, and persistent in their belief that they are not experiencing life in the right gender. And the associated symptoms, whether they're anxiety, whether they're mood symptoms, whether they're experiences of of memory loss or other cognitive symptoms, whether it's experiences of uh, PTSD or uh, experiences that may seem similar to complex trauma too, we really start to see that whole sequelae that is formed around the distress in being in one's gender. And importantly, when being able to have access to affirming care, right, whether that's psychological support, whether that is affirming individuals in their life, whether that is the right hormones or the right surgery, that we see that experience begin to remit and fade away.
1: I mean, there are consequences of this gender dysphoria. I mean, it's suicide uh, anxiety, depression, it's, it's not, it's not a simple thing, is it?
0: It's not a simple thing. What we know from lots of research is that the number one predictor of suicide attempts by those in the trans community is the lack of support, right? And so there's nothing inherent in trans individuals that makes them more predisposed to attempt suicide. Right? This is the reaction that they experience from society. This is specifically transphobia or lack of support from families and friends, too. And importantly, when trans individuals, especially trans youth, have access to that support, we see those rates of suicide attempts go back down to the national average. You know, some studies show that suicide attempts in the trans community are anywhere between 40 and 60%. That's attempts. That's not thinking about it. That's actively trying to end one's life, right? And so if we have an intervention that is as simple as support and affirmation that just really comes from within and does not cost really anything, then why are we not rolling out that intervention to save so many lives? The fact of the matter is it is complicated, in terms of trying to garner that support. And so that's why spaces like Trans Health Northampton, we are so committed to keeping families together. We are so committed to bringing your, your friends in. We're so committed to ensuring that you have that support so that we can actively work to not just save lives and prevent suicide, but create a possibility of a new life for someone where they're able to reach a point where they can experience joy and affirmation and live the life
1: that they always knew they were meant to live. So, gender dysphoria isn't just a state of mind; it's an actual diagnosis. Um, you mentioned that the American Psychiatric Association has it as part of the DSM five, which is the people call it the Bible of uh, psychiatry, and it also has diagnostic and billing codes. and And that's kind of getting into the the sort of the the good and the bad of this this diagnosis, it, it's important in a sense for treatment and insurance, isn't it?
0: Yes. It is important in treatment and insurance because there is a level of medical necessity that is required to be able to provide any type of treatment that is paid for by insurance, right? So the way that an insurer decides if something should be paid for is if it meets that medical necessity criteria. Right. And for so long, trans and gender diverse people have fought just to have a seat at the table, just to have their health care covered in the first place. Right. For so long, there were so many financial barriers and still are many financial barriers for trans and gender diverse people to get the life-saving care that they need. So I really want to acknowledge that. I also really want to acknowledge the fact that many trans and gender diverse people do experience gender dysphoria. And so for them, that code may actually really be helpful for them. It exemplifies their experience. And at the same time, it is also uh, not only accurate, but also able to get them access to life-saving health care. So I am not by any means advocating that gender dysphoria should be omitted from a billing requirement necessarily necessarily is one of the billing requirements. But what I am advocating for is instead for insurers to really open up what is deemed medically necessary, because it is not the experience of every trans person that they will necessarily experience gender dysphoria. For many trans people, they again, as I talked about before, repression, right, may push that experience down, and just instead try to cruise along with their life and compartmentalize the distress so that they can survive, right? Some other folks, they may really be born into a supportive family and supportive town. And, you know, times are changing. So they may actually just not experience gender dysphoria because they're in a really great spot, right? And so if we, by necessity, say that dysphoria is part of the trans experience, we are inadvertently pathologizing uh, so an identity. And we are linking dysphoria with an identity, either consciously or
1: unconsciously. You wrote that, quote, providing gender affirming care to trans people because they are trans, not because they have a specious diagnosis would have. I, I thought that was a great idea. You know, you're providing care because somebody needs it, not because they they kind of fit into a pigeonhole. Um you think that that sort of change would have some important outcomes, like what kinds of things could it accomplish? I think that on a big picture, we should also be asking the question, why
0: is healthcare always based off of what is wrong with you versus what is right with you, right? And that is really rooted in medical philosophy and diagnostics to say that there's something wrong and we're going to treat versus perhaps a health promotion perspective where it's actually there might not be something wrong with you, but we're still going to provide you with help so we can continue to keep going what's right with you. So just different approaches, I'd say, number one, why is this a system built off of illness rather than a system built off of health? Now, in terms of providing gender affirming care to people just because they're trans, just believing them, we'd be able to really reduce stigma around the identity of being trans, right? Because we're seeing more and more trans and gender diverse people, especially youth, coming out with new identities, new pronouns, new experiences of their own gender, and they're not necessarily requiring any type of health care. For that, right? They instead are coming to their own realization of who they are. And so there's many experiences of being trans or gender diverse which don't require health care, right? And so we shouldn't automatically link the trans experience to healthcare. And what this does is not only starts to unlink that a little bit, but also reduces the stigma around being trans, that you don't necessarily have to suffer. You don't necessarily have to experience dysphoria, right, to be trans. You know, also, so much of what's heard in the media, so much of what's heard on the news cycle, whenever you hear a story about a trans person, it's generally about some type of mental illness, too. It's generally about the suicide rate, it's generally about the depression and anxiety. And unfortunately, this has the added impact of conflating mental illness with an identity. And so if we don't necessarily tether that diagnostic American psychiatric code to an identity, then we don't necessarily link that identity to a mental health illness.
1: So what kinds of things would a... Let's stick with this for a second. What kinds of things would a diagnosis of gender dysphoria unlock for someone? So right now, given the current system... A diagnosis of gender dysphoria would unlock,
0: you know, access to gender affirming psychotherapy. Although other diagnoses could also allow for that too. Importantly, though, it would also allow for access to gender affirming hormones and continuation of those hormone hormones or blockers, right? And so, being able to block uh, puberty as well and then we'd also see increased access and unlocking, so to speak, of uh, ability to receive surgery, whether that is, you know, facial surgery, whether that is chest surgery, whether that is uh, what we might consider bottom surgery or surgery on genitalia, too. And then there are other surgeries that people might consider, too, um, not necessarily covered by insurance, Um, but the gender dysphoria diagnosis still might be a requirement for the surgeon's office uh, to have, Mm -hmm. right? So there's not just one player here. It's not just insurance, right? It is also then what criteria the surgeon sets forth as well.
1: Interesting. It's very complicated. It's
0: very complicated, and many trans folks really have difficulty navigating the system, which is why health navigators can be so important here, or community health workers.
1: Let's zoom back a little bit, or zoom out, I think, Um, How accessible is gender-affirming care in the United States?
0: Well, I would say it is – the good news is it's becoming more accessible, right, in general. So we're seeing some telehealth companies get into gender-affirming care, um, but specifically providing hormones, right? So that's not everything that is gender-affirming care. Mm -hmm. That is one sliver of gender-affirming care. We are also seeing some other places pop up here and there that are independent, that are may, that are independent in providing, maybe hormones or maybe some aesthetic things, but they may not be covered by insurance, right? And so that's a huge barrier, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. These telehealth companies also generally do not take insurance either, too. Um, and then you look at academic medical centers and. More and more, we're seeing academic medical centers having a transgender or LGBTQ clinic of some sort, and that is expanding access there. That was not what we'd expect 10 years ago. And then we also see um, some FQHCs, federally qualified health centers, that are also providing gender-affirming care in different ways. Now, that's not every FQHC, but there are a collection of those across the country that do. And then, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the terrible, terrible anti-trans legislation that is happening right now across the country. And what I worry about is seeing a segmentation of care between states where there is active opposition to gender-affirming care, and then other states where you see full support of gender-affirming care. And the reality is, is that healthcare should not be beholden to state lines. And healthcare should not be beholden to politicians, right? They should never, as Republican Governor Asa Hutchinson said, you know, no government has the right to get in between a provider and the family and the kids, right? And so unfortunately, we are seeing a scaling back of gender affirming care in places where it is currently under attack. And that's not what that's not what healthcare should look like as be in the state lines. it's not what the the free market would want and it's definitely does not respect ideas of liberty or self-determination uh, or the freedom to be who you are
1: as an individual. I was gonna bring that up Northampton um, I n- know this a little bit, but I was looking it up um, and it it's been rated as one of the most liberal medium-sized cities in the United States and so you're in a perfect place for offering the kind of care that your organization is but it must be just impossible to get care in very conservative or you know highly rural places um so it's uh it has to be a conundrum for For so many people, and much is being written today about the dearth of, you know, mental health clinicians. Is it even more pronounced for clinicians who focus on or are competent in gender care?
0: I would say a couple things. I would say that given our access to telehealth, we are able to see folks that are outside of Northampton, and we do see a lot of folks that are out in the Berkshires in western Massachusetts, which. Some folks don't even have access to internet and have to use a phone to be able to call in. And so we are expanding care to rural areas and we really do want to focus on that and also do want to focus on expanding care to perhaps more conservative areas in New Hampshire, for example, in New England, and and then continue after that by leveraging telehealth. Um, Because we do believe that folks in rural areas really need this care and also folks in places that might not be politically aligned with, you know the population of Northampton in terms of mental health we there is no formalized training for gender affirming care in mental health or in primary care and there are a lot of mental health clinicians that do not see themselves as able to effectively understand if someone is experiencing gender dysphoria or not, or meets the requirements for a surgery. And oftentimes a mental health letter is required to have access to a gender affirming surgery, right? And the mental health clinician saying, you do meet the criteria for this. And so surgery is deemed medically necessary. When you don't have enough mental health clinicians to be able to say that this is medically necessary, then you have an access issue for trans and gender diverse folks who want access to that surgery, right? And so many people spend so long just trying to get access to a mental health provider just so they can jump the hoops to then be able to get access to surgery, right? And that is decided, again, by surgeons' offices and insurance companies, right? So what MassHealth has done in Massachusetts recently is actually loosen the criteria around requiring Uh, mental health providers' involvement, right? No longer requiring two letters, which is what was required before. And we're continuing to see changes where there's less that's being asked of the individual to require them to go into some type of psychotherapy or meet with a mental health clinician, because who wants to be required (laughs) to go see a mental health provider, but instead still offer that access to the people who need it, who really want to be able to access this type of care.
1: Dallas, what got you into providing this kind of care?
0: Hmm. Well, when I was a student, I was transitioning and I uh, had the lovely opportunity to spend some of my rotation at a pediatric primary care clinic in Virginia where I was transitioning that focused on gender affirming care. And I was the only mental health provider in that clinic, right? There was not even someone necessarily supervising me as a psychiatric nurse practitioner in psychiatry, right? Um, I was still being supervised, right, in an appropriate way. But I had this experience where I got to actually start providing mental health care in a very new way and got to meet individuals on a one-on-one basis and just be so amazed at their courage and their resilience and their strength. And... I, as a trans person, going through my own transition at that time, you know, so many people told me, you should go into gender-affirming health care. You should do this. I said, no, I don't, I don't want my identity to become so close to my work. I, that, that's not me. Um, but before I knew it, I was knee-deep in it. I was working on policies and procedures and doing the one-to-one clinical care, and eventually uh, was working at Mass General Hospital in their transgender health program there, and really helping to outline what the psychiatric services in that clinic should look like. And that very generative approach and that co-creational approach and taking what I learned from boots on the ground with learning from patients who are really my best teachers, right? And then implementing that into what healthcare should look like. That was what was really inspirational.
1: Well, your own experience must really inform how you deal with your patients or clients, and and it must give them great affirmation to see success.
0: That is why we try to ensure that all the people who work here are representative of the trans and gender diverse community and of different lived experiences so that everyone has the opportunity to really see themselves in their provider, in their clinician, in you know, whoever they're meeting, the person at the front desk or or the CEO. And to me, there's something that is to this day remains ineffable about my experience of transitioning, somewhat existential, you know, this combination of of choice and also coming to being in your own way. And quite frankly, for me, it was very scary sometimes. It was um, involved huge leaps of faith. It involved moving forward in a decision where I could potentially lose my friends, my family, my job, my education. And yet I still believed it was the right path. And so whenever I think about any of the folks coming into our clinic, especially for the first time, I think about how much was weighing on me when I made that decision, how scared I was just to to walk to my favorite coffee shop around the corner when I first started transitioning or how worried I was that my parents, my grandparents would never talk to me again, right? And I think about the honor that we have here, that patients are entrusting those fears, those anxieties, but also those visions and those hopes with us, that existential journey. And, you know, what more sacred ask is there than to say, hey, I I trust you with my life and I trust you with who I am and I want to be here with you. To me, that that is very informative and it's something I think about all the time.
1: Dallas, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, and kudos to you and your colleagues for providing compassionate care. You know, w- w- as I say that, that sounds redundant, but it, it, it really shouldn't be redundant, and unfortunately, it's not always what happens, um, but thank you for providing that kind of care to people who really need it. Thank you, Pat. It's really an honor and a privilege, and we're just grateful to be here. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion podcast. It's produced by and truly shaped by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I love to hear from listeners. Please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear in the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time.